You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am tickled pink that you are listening. It has been a few months now since I did a roundup of the arts to chat with a variety of our local arts makers, but with the autumn equinox soon upon us, it seemed like a good time to catch up with what's happening at Skylark Bookshop, the Columbia Art League, Ragtech Cinema, and the University of Missouri's theatre department. So that is where we are off to for this week's show. Maybe it's because I have just grown accustomed to the time in which we find ourselves, and it is probably because I put this show together every week, but I feel as connected to the arts in Colombia as I ever did, and that is something for which I give full and hearty thanks to the arts leaders we have here, who have proved their creative mettle a thousand times over these past six months to keep us involved with books and theatre, fine art, movies and music. Yes, it is of course not the same as all being there in person, and we have mourned the lack of festivals like the Unbound Book Festival, Art in the Park and Roots and Blues, But I have shared in movie experiences, listened to author talks, watched theatre, checked out art shows, all thanks to a myriad of executive directors and technically capable volunteers who have sweated their way to making it possible. And I am so grateful and feel so fortunate to live here. It's a good job that I managed to snag a local 15 years ago and make Columbia my home. So let's head out. First stop today is with my pal from the south of England, Alex George and his literary emporium, Skylock Bookshop. Good morning, Alex. Hi, Diana. How are you today? I am delighted to have you back on the show again. Since we last chatted, Skylark turned two back on August the 25th. And as you note on your website, for a full quarter of Skylark's existence, your doors have in fact been closed, which is a very strange situation indeed. And yet you and Carrie have done really such an incredible job of transforming your bricks and mortar business into an online palace for the literary arts. <laughs> how are you? How are you feeling about your second birthday? Do you feel old beyond your years at this point? <laughs> yes. Yeah, weary uh, is the word. Uh, I mean, it. You know, it's obviously not the party or the celebration quite that we had we had anticipated. Um, but you know, you you play the cards you're dealt, and uh, as you say, we've been closed for a quarter of our life now, which is a little sad. But on we go, and um, we were just sitting around trying to work out what we could do since we couldn't have everybody in and um, and celebrate in person. And so we came up with this idea. Uh, we, we're calling it Secret Skylark, which is obviously a play on Secret Santa, and. Um, it's been wonderful. We've had nearly a hundred people who've sort of participated in this this little thing that we're doing, which is um, 
So everyone, one of the fun things about working in the bookstore is being able to recommend books that we absolutely adore. And we wanted to give everyone the chance to do that. And so we said, well, come in and buy your most, most favorite book and then tell us why it's your favorite book. And then we put all of these books into a nest, admittedly a metaphorical one rather than a literal one, and then we distributed them again. Uh, And so we gave everyone who gave a book, got a book, but it's somebody else's favorite book. And it's been wonderful to read the notes that people have written, explaining why they love these books so much. Uh, And it's been fun to sort of to marry them up with other readers and to send them all out. And so we've had a, a lot of fun doing that. And one of the other things that we did was we invited people to make a donation to City of Refuge. And many, many people have done that. People have been so generous. And we actually have over $1,000 that has been given. And we're going to be buying books for City of Refuge and for the families who uh, who they serve And so there are going to be lots of books being distributed to those families. And so we're absolutely thrilled about that. And we're so grateful to everybody who who has donated. It's, uh, you know, we we firmly believe, as you know, that books are a force for good. And um, this is one way that we're sort of showing that, I hope. Did you anticipate as many as 100 people taking part in Secret Skylark? We had no idea. I mean, with uh, we really, with all of the things that we're trying to do and that we've been trying to do since we opened, we never know uh, what's going to work and what isn't going to work. We are very much in the throw it against a wall and see what sticks. That's our, <laughs> our general mode of business. So we, we had no idea. I mean, I it's beyond my wildest dreams. We've been absolutely overwhelmed with the response and absolutely thrilled. So it's been great. And and it's been, as I say, really fun to see the books that have been chosen. I think a couple of books have been chosen twice, but only two, which has been interesting as well. So there's such a wide breadth of of choice and of reading habits. It's been really interesting. I wondered if there might have been some books that appeared more than once. So that's interesting that actually it was only two books that were chosen more than once. Were they chosen multiple times or was there just one other copy of it? Two books were chosen twice. And so that was that was it. No, no, nothing has been chosen three times yet. Are you also in the program? Did you choose a book? Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would have chosen the same one, so just as well you didn't really. Well, that's right. Yes, because I know what you chose. And uh, <laughs> and that's right. I probably would have chosen that one as well. So, But uh, no, I didn't. I guess I got so interested in looking at everybody else's choices, I forgot to do it myself. So how did you do the marrying? Was it just uh, a big bag, put your hand in, pull one out and send it to somebody? Or did you think about the people who you were choosing for and, and choose accordingly? Oh, absolutely. The latter, you know, the the fun of it is to is to think about it and to make um, and and you know one of the joys of working in the shop, of course, is that we get to know our customers and the people who have supported us. Not all of them, because actually quite a few we've never met because they actually live out of state, but they support us anyway. But a lot of people, and you're a perfect example, Diana. We know well, and so we were able to choose what we think would be a good book for you. 
So, um, so you're laughing. I... <laughs> well, I do have a wee story to tell you about this. It's an extremely big book. <laughs> <laughs> and I do love big books. So you were absolutely spot on. So I signed up and uh, I chose to give my favorite mystery novel of all time called The Magus by John Fowles. And it feels like whoever I give it to, I feel like I'm just giving them this amazing gift. And I was very excited to get my call to say that my secret Skylark package was ready to be picked up. So when I got to Skylark, Carrie came out with my brown paper parcel. So you can't see what it is. And through her mask, she said, I'm giving you a backup book in addition, as I think this is maybe a bit cruel. And and you know, you've got your mask on and I'm thinking and it's on a busy street and I'm thinking, is she saying cool or cruel? So we went back and forth a couple of times and it's just like cruel. It's definitely it's a bit cruel. So, you know, it's a big weighty thing. So I know it's a giant book, which, you know, makes me happy. So I get it home, I don't open it, and then I get a glass of wine. And I read the note from the giver, which was very eloquent and, and a passionate encouragement to stay the course of this book. Don't give up <laughs> and, and to call her if I had any questions or just needed to chat about it. So I unwrapped it with a little bit of trepidation. And there it was, a book I would never otherwise have picked up, a book which has been described as the Ulysses for the Gen Xers, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, a whopping 1,100 pages of, some would say, impenetrable literature. So I wrote to my gifter, um, because I had her email address, and I said, I'm sending this from the edge of the vortex as I start my descent into the (laughs) netherworld of lexicological brilliance and a pandemic perfect escape. I'm not sure yet if you will find me weeping on your doorstep, insanely yelling your name at council meetings, or showering you with eternal (laughs) gratitude for getting me to read a book I would never have picked up. Meanwhile, it turns out that maybe contrary to the regular plan, she got... The Magus. She got the book that I gifted. So we had each other's books, which I don't think you said is really the way it's supposed to go. But no, it's not. It's perfect because I think we're both really excited to take these two journeys that are lexicologically a little tricky. You've got to have a dictionary to hand for both of them. But I think it might be a new bond of friendship between myself and Anna Lingo. So I'm very excited to be on a journey with Anna. Oh, I hope so. So as an avid reader and writer, who would you say got the best deal here, Alex? Oh, you're not going to ask me to choose between John Fowles and David Foster Wallace. <laughs> I absolutely am. Uh, well, I I would say Anna got the best deal uh, <laughs> only because I love the Megas more. So I would say that. But on a per word basis, you got the better deal by quite a long <laughs> A lot. Quite a long way. 1,100 pages versus 656. Yeah, and a lot of of those 1,100 pages are footnotes as well. Mm, Over 100 are footnotes. Yeah, you're in for for some fun there. (laughs) It is, I mean, it's a book like no other, and that's that's such a cliche these days, but it really is true. There's a reason why it has such renown. It's a stunning, stunning work. So now going, going back to your earlier answer that means that you specifically chose that book for me it wasn't me <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> of 
course it wasn't Alex. We do no, honestly, I'm, we we divide and conquer. Um, that that was, I think it was Kerry who chose that for you. But then she told me it was a cruel choice. So it was she was admitting to her own cruelty there in in giving it to me. Although I must admit, I don't think it was cruel at all. I think it was absolutely perfect. So I think I think it was spot on. I'm wondering why, if she chose it, she thought it was a bit cruel and gave me a backup book, which I, I probably won't read because I just I'm I'm having such a great time with David Foster Wallace. <laughs> I, I think it's just because it's so jolly long. Um, you know, it, it has defeated many readers over the course of its lifetime. I'm sure that's all it was. <laughs> so you have, um, well, actually, let's see. Today we are talking to each other on Tuesday and, and people will be listening to this on Friday. And in between, you will have had your Thursday evening online birthday bash. So I guess um, you can tell us how it went. <laughs> oh, it was fantastic. <laughs> We had such a good time. It was it was just wonderful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you had some author appearances, which you may know about. Um, yeah, we did. <laughs> We're still doing like <laughs> oh, Yes, the glitch in the space-time continuum is doing my head in. Um, well, I'm still trying to work those out, actually. So okay, I don't okay. quite know. <laughs> I don't quite know just how much fun we had yesterday evening, but um, I'm sure it was... It was a lot. <laughs> I'm sure it's fabulous. So what else um, have you got coming up over the next couple of weeks that people can get involved with? So Must Read TV, which is, and we normally do it on a Thursday night, is what we're trying to do because we can't have people into the shop. We're doing these online um, events and they've been wonderful fun. And uh, next week I am talking to a writer called Mamta Chowdhury, who's written a book called Haunting Paris which uh, I haven't read yet, but I'm going to start it this evening because I will be interviewing her and we'll be discussing it. But, you know, I have a certain fondness for novels set in Paris for some reason. So we'll be we'll be talking about that. And there is a, a long list of on the, on the website if you go to the events page and you can see who's coming up. But we are adding people literally every day. And we're now going out into November, I think. One of the more fun ones is going to be, we're doing a sort of pre-election special. I think it's on October the 4th with Sarah Kenzior, who um, is a very well-regarded journalist who lives in St. Louis. And she wrote a book called The View from Flyover Country. And she has a new book out called Hiding in Plain Sight, which is a history, I suppose you might say, of Donald Trump and how he came to power. And it's really illuminating and really, really quite interesting. But the first chapter of that book is all about Missouri, and it's about how Missouri and the politics of Missouri is really a microcosm of what's happening nationally. And it's an eye-opening first chapter. It's an absolute killer chapter. Anyway, so she's going to be coming in or sort of (laughs) beaming in from St. Louis, and we're going to be talking about politics and the race and the election and that that's going to be spectacular because she is incredibly bright and very sharp and has a lot of really interesting things to say. So I'm looking forward to that one in particular. Oh, that will be a fun one to listen to. So Mamta Chowdhury, Haunting Paris, coming up on September the 24th, next Thursday. And then you have two essay collections coming up on September the 30th by Michelle Morano called Like Love 
and Joanna Alatheriu and This Way Back. And those, the, both those authors are going to be with you on Wednesday, September the 30th. Alex, as always, thank you so much. And thank you for just being so brilliant and keeping everybody engaged. Oh, I, I always look you. forward to seeing what you're <laughs> doing. And, and I'm excited, so excited to be part of Secret Skylark and, and the journey that you have sent me off on. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Great to talk to you. I'll speak to you soon, Alex. I don't know about you, but I fancy a little art chat next. So let's turn south out of Skylark and mosey a couple of blocks to the Columbia Art League. And representing the field of fine art on this morning's show is none other than the esteemable Kelsey Hammond, raiser of children, photographer, bookstore owner, (laughs) and for the purposes of today's chat, executive director of the Columbia Art League. Good morning, Kelsey. Good morning. So this week you open a new show in the main gallery simply called The Figure. And despite the fact that we all possess a body and we probably see it naked once a day, the history of the figure in art is so beset by the moralities of the ages that how we represent ourselves is kind of a bellwether for our our mores. And even now in the 21st century, the figure courts controversy. And I feel sure that you have a lot to say about that, Kelsey. So, <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do. <laughs> Let's start with what do you look for in a figurative work? Maybe you should say what is a what are we what are we talking about here? What is the premise of the show? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the premise very simple in terms of um, how people can interpret. So we sort of mentioned the tradition of the human figure in art has been as a tool for learning about the body and, and what it can do and, and very much was related to science at a time and, you know, how muscles work. Artist renderings were used in scientific theory and thought about how the body was put together and things. There's all sorts of stuff where it's all been interlinked in all of these areas. So we really wanted to see the contemporary take on interpreting this idea of representing the human figure in some way. So We've got cave paintings, we've got, you know, (laughs) super hypo-realistic drawings from current modern times, sculptures, all these things. So so whether it's an abstracted figure or a realistic figure, we just want to see it all. I did have a lot of questions from people about whether or not the nude figure would be acceptable and okay to submit, and I thought that was so interesting. We very much left that out of our description, um, because I wanted to see what people would turn in, you know, I don't want to lead people down a certain way um, for their interpretation. But, but yes, I do want to see the nude figure because hello, I mean, it's pretty great looking. So yeah, we got a good mix of stuff. But your question was something that I am now well, how it courts controversy and, and how it's so linked to the morality of the ages. Yeah, so I think, um, I can speak from my own experience uh, because my work, my own artwork is very much related around the nude figure. And so living in California, growing up there and making, that's where I went to grad school. And my work was all about that. I really didn't have a lot of pushback about my subject matter. I could have a gallery show. There was no, no big deal, you know? So when I came to the Midwest, all of a sudden it became more of a, an issue and people started to talk to me about it more and I had to sort of think about the location. So I think like even in terms of the century or whatever that we're in, also thinking about the location that we're in, you know, so what would fly in San Francisco is not necessarily going to fly here or there's just a little more education that has to go around it or something. So I think that people are 
there's pushback when there's a naked figure in front of you, a nude figure. If nipples are showing, this is a whole thing on Instagram right now. So if, if nipples are showing, it's like you're, you get blocked and you can't post anything for a while or whatever. Well, let's face it, male nipples are fine. Male nipples, right, exactly. And actually, I think in Colombia, it's still legal for men and women to both be topless it in is, yes. town. Yeah, which I think is fabulous. But anyway, so exactly. So what is the difference between a male figure and a nude female figure and being nude? And I think there's also this idea that in this show in particular, we have both female and male nudes, but there are far less male representation in the artwork, but not necessarily with the artists who've made the work. So that's kind of an interesting thing too, of, of thinking about who is making the work versus who is the work about. And are the nudes made because again, it's this idea of trying to figure out form, you know, like, am I trying to figure out how the muscles work and how I can represent this three dimensional form in a two dimensional space or, you know, whatever medium you're working with. Or is it about sexuality? And is that bad? If a man is making an image of a woman, is that somehow inherently now sexist that we put that reading on it? Like what, what are all the questions that can come up about this thing that we all have, this body that we carry around? You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff. It's a very deep well <laughs> to get into with all of the, the ideas. So. So you talked a little bit about your work. You are a photographer and you focus on the figure, but it is your own figure predominantly. And yet you write that your work has been called pornographic and gallery windows have been vandalized. So you, when you came here, you to some degree, you began to self-censor. What do you think people are so offended by or afraid of? Well, and you know, I think that I, I'm not sure exactly I think if you if you look at my work, there's no, to me, it's so someone once related it to pornography, in a a tangential way, and they didn't know that it was my work, and they were writing me an angry letter about it. And I really had to kind of think about that for a minute, because I view pornography as different. I I personally don't even think that pornography is bad. I think that it serves a function, whatever. But what my work is doing and the point of my work is not about pornography. It's about self-acceptance and about beauty and about, um, about the idea of whether or not a large beauty can be beautiful in a society that is constantly telling you not to be, you know, like trying to get into an airplane and everybody feels uncomfortable in the seats. And yet it's the larger person in the airplane who's vilified for not being able to fit. So just that idea of, of what, how do we feel about our bodies and, and by looking at my work, do you then think about your own body, whether you are a large person or not? You know, what is that idea of that corporal feeling or sense? So if that's my intention <laughs> and someone sees it and thinks pornography, then the breakdown is either in my communication or they are not coming and learning about the work itself. I find it hard to look at my work and think of pornography. So so I think that that's like a very simple, simplified way of basically saying like, ick, I don't like it which I think then goes back again to the subject matter. The the nudes that were on the wall when that stuff was written were not thin people. It was a large body. So it's very possible what they were really saying is, I don't want to see that fatness in a space. So there's a lot of stuff to unpack. And I, I don't know exactly the motivation for how they were feeling because I didn't really get into it with them. But we had in that same gallery where my work was shown, we had lots of nude figures at different times 
and my work was the only work that had ever been railed against. So, so I think that there is something more than just the fact that it was nude work. And these were in, in particular really large mural prints. So they were three feet by four feet photographs of abstracted sort of landscape looking like body parts. I think it's interesting how the majority of artists, certainly from antiquity through the Renaissance and up until the 20th century, really privileged beauty and virility and fertility. Yeah. And even today, the tendency is to is to present this idealized figure. And, and it really speaks to our obsession with beauty and the different standards that women and men are held to. And honestly, for most people, this this idealization of beauty is exhausting to the majority of us who who through this continual barrage of beauty see only our own imperfections. Do you think art has trained us to expect beauty and therefore it's it's really important when different forms of beauty are portrayed through art? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that you can walk into this show and see that it's a fairly white representation of of figures. You know, there there's not a lot of diversity in ethnicities represented, at least on the surface. So that's one thing, you know, like I talk a lot to younger people, especially because I talk about body positivity and thinking and loving the body that you're in about the idea that you need to, you need to look at antithetical material. So you need to be not just looking at whatever the magazines are telling you beauty is, but you need to be looking at a lot of different bodies. You know, you need to look at represent, representation matters. So when you see yourself represented in, in art or in the media in some way, then you feel like you have more validity and that you're, uh, that your body is a good body. And so I think that looking at a show like this, even you need to come in with a critical eye and be thinking about that kind of thing. So if women are supposed to be held to a certain standard of beauty and men are too, I mean, the beauty industry is certainly not uh, discriminating against, you know, they're looking for money in all the places. You need to be thinking about that in everything that you're consuming media wise. And that includes galleries and, and museums and things, that critical piece where you're thinking about, well, who's telling me the story? Who is this of? What am I supposed to understand from it is a really important piece. I think when you're reading the artwork and I think it was Anne Mayer who said, in fact, I know it was her who talked to kindergartners once when we were in, I was at my kids, you know, museum trip. And she talked to them about, are we laughing at these naked bodies that we see? No, of course not. We are artists and we look at these bodies and we are getting information from the artists who are talking to us and they're telling us something through the art. And so she talked about how a nude body tells you something about the actual person, if they're feeling healthy or feeling sick or if they're old or young, that kind of thing. And if the person's wearing clothes, then you're learning about what the person does or what status, you know, what status they have in the society, or that kind of thing. And I thought that was just a good way to talk about it to children. And I think that that, (laughs) that would have been helpful in some of the other situations I've been in, in my career, where people are calling into question whether or not you should have a, a nude figure on the wall, because you should, it tells you something, you know, it's information. Do you think there are works in the current show, which will elicit, as you put it, waggling eyebrows and questions about decency? Yeah, maybe. 
I mean, everyone should come and check it out. Because <laughs> you tell me what you think. I mean, I don't think there's anything that is, I mean, not, not for me. I think that it is a very lovely show and there's a lot of really, really nice pieces in there. I think that some people who are not used to seeing a naked figure or a nude figure will maybe do a double take. And there are a couple of, there are penises in this show. There are breasts, there are butt cheeks, you know, there are, there are all sorts of anatomical parts. So if that is offensive, then this might not be the show for you. But if you've been locked in your house for a long time and you want to see other people and a whole lot of them, then you should definitely come to this show. (laughs) That's going to be my tagline for the whole time it's up on the walls. (laughs) When you look around the show, what influences do you see in terms of maybe other artists, more famous artists? There's like a, a Rembrandt vibe for sure in some of the pieces and like a, um, Shannon Soldner, her painting is very luscious and just delicious. Like you just want to, you just want to like, I don't know, touch the painting because it's, it. you know, her, yeah, I mean, yes, exactly. Do not it's lick the artwork. So, don't lick the artwork, please. <laughs> um, and don't touch it either. But, but it's just very sumptuous, you know, like you just really that sensuousness of that surface. You just want to touch it. And I think that that is such a, such an accomplishment, right? And so there, and then there are other pieces where the paint is very flat. There's one that's all blue tones and the paint's very flat, but the title is called Insecurity and the, and the figure is sort of holding, the arm is sort of holding her breasts away out of the viewer's eyes. And it's painted by a woman. And I think there's a lot there that you can unpack. So looking at the title and looking at the piece and doing that extra work really, I think, can get you into the... I don't know, the feeling of what the artists were thinking when they were, when they were making stuff. So but we also have some great bronze figures. And so there's, there's a lot of artists I see influence, you know, that have influenced it. Well, we are out of time, but the figure show is open now and it runs through November the 5th and there is no opening reception, but it's open. Your hours are Tuesday through Saturday from noon to four. And if anybody wants to have like a private tour or something, I'm happy to always do that too. So perfect. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much. I look forward to coming down and seeing the show and chatting to you again soon. Sounds good. Thank you. I confess I have a significant amount of trepidation about being in indoor spaces with other people, at least for the last six months. So it is many months since I sat in a movie theatre. But over on Hit Street at Ragtag Cinema, their creative team have been back in the business of being a cinema since June. Good morning, Barbie. Good morning. How are you? I'm delighted to have you back on the show again. It has been a more than a couple of months. And and since we last spoke, a lot of good things have happened with Ragtag since June. There are now three co-executive directors in charge of all things Ragtagian? Ragtagian? Yes. I don't know if there's an adjective. <laughs> You resurrected the drive-in as a force. You've operated a cinema amidst a pandemic. And just last week, you reached a fundraising goal of $200,000, which is amazing. Has it been a dizzying summer for you? It has been. You know, whenever I pictured myself running this org, I thought, oh, it's just going to be maintaining all the great things we already do. And then all of a sudden it was like, nope, you have to be an entrepreneur and start with all these new ideas. And so it's been really crazy. But 
it just once again proves that the Columbia community really supports what we do. And so, you know, our drive-in sold out in just a day and we've seen people at the cinema, not as many as we'd like, but definitely fans coming in and a different crowd than we often see, which is nice. And then we have some new things on the horizon and it's been pretty cool. And the fundraising goal, like it's hard, you know, I'm a very positive person, but it's hard to relay like how dire the situation is for cinemas. And um, we were able to do that and people supported us. And I just can't thank all those donors enough. And if you didn't donate, I bet you can guess that we have other opportunities (laughs) coming up for you to support us. So yeah, it's, it's been a crazy summer and it's going to be an even crazier fall, I think. Well, we'll come back to the fundraising in a minute because I want to ask you a little bit more about that. But going back to the first thing, which is like there are now three of you. There was one person in charge and now there are three co-directors. But um, on your website, you talk about how the new leadership team will more commonly be known as the organization's co-custodians. And I wondered why you opted for that definition over, say, the fest. I always think about the co-conspirators moniker that they always use for the true false film fest. But you are co-custodians. Talk a little bit about that. You know, it kind of came off of the co-conspirators that we can't assume that role because we didn't conspire to make this happen. But we do pledge to maintain the great organization that it is. And we see that as being custodian. So watching over it, maintaining it, making sure it stays strong. And it's funny, we, you know, have had a hard time convincing everybody that this is a good term. And then (laughs) a few weeks ago, President Obama was talking about how the president is the custodian of our democracy in America. And I don't compare myself to a president, but (laughs) um, it did feel like, yes, that's exactly what we're saying. It's our job, the three of us, to maintain what Ragtag Film Society is. And I'm excited about it. It feels um, it feels different than we thought it might be with the pandemic, but we're making it happen. I love it. I think that's, that's a word that I often said in conjunction with my time at the Columbia Art League, that I felt like I was the custodian of 50 years of history. Yes. And that what I did going forward had to, you know, reflect back on everything that had gone before. And I was keeping the flame alive for the next person that came along and the next generation that came along. Yeah. And it's not without... Um, There are times where we clean up popcorn and clean the bathrooms and (laughs) we do that too. So it really does, we feel like it encompasses everything that we're doing and we're humbled that the board has given us this task to do. So there's you, Camelia Cosgray and Aaron Lieberman. Are you splitting up the tasks between you? Do you all have areas of responsibility, different areas of responsibility? Yeah, we kind of took the top job descriptions from our org and broke the task into what we call buckets and um, looked at what our strengths are. We did Strengths Quest and have Carrie Goyette from Aperio Consulting has been helping us understand our leadership strengths and what we should be overseeing. So we are each driving certain areas of the organization. And our hope is, and the model that we kind of are working with is that If at any time, you know, one of the things I'm over is community partnerships and education. And if at any time, Camellia or Aaron's strengths become the better fit for that, that we can easily move those buckets around. And so it's a much more agile 
form of leadership. And we feel like that is what we need right now and to be able to mix things up and switch things around to make sure we're successful. It's a very unconventional model having three people in charge. And I'm, I had a discussion recently about this and not in relation to RegTech, but just that who signs the document? Who is the final sayer on, on documents or, you know, signing bank things or, or grants? Are you all signing things or is there one person that kind of has overall signature? Yeah, we have appointed myself as the person who will be the, you know, like with the federal government, you have to have one signature, <laughs> you know, and so we've appointed me as that person. But with that doesn't come any additional power or a more weighted vote in what we decide to do. That was probably the biggest concern of our board was like, if there's a disagreement between the three of us, or if we're in a standoff for an agreement, how do we make a decision? And we worked really hard to come up with multiple options of going to our next level of directors who can help us or bringing in a mediator if that is needed. But we all really care so much about this org that we will fight for what we believe in and then compromise and it's worked pretty well. I can see that it would work well. I see you as a very cohesive and harmonious team. There may be other trios of people that you could see that it wouldn't work well with. But yes. <laughs> it seems like you're ahead going into it. So so going back to the fundraising, I mean, raising $200,000 is pretty phenomenal at any time. Yes. But certainly when economic uncertainty is so rife, and I didn't even notice it pop up as a fundraising goal until you were already at something like 120,000. So when did that whole journey to $200,000 start? So we, um, back in January, we knew we were going to have our 20th birthday party this summer. We had a, you know, not COVID safe event planned, where we were going to do a street party. And we started planning that and we started thinking about maintaining ragtag into the future and what do the next 20 years look like at the same time we were working with a wonderful fundraising coach named jamie friedrichs and she just kept telling us you guys are ready to raise a large amount of money and all of us were very skeptical and she guided us through it and then the pandemic hit so we kind of had to switch gears of what the event was going to look like but she didn't feel and then was right that there was no change in the people who were ready to donate to us. And so Stacey Pottinger, who's our development director, started working on it probably in May is when it really started kicking off. And we just met with a ton of people, people who have told us that they're supporters for years, and then they were able to put some of their money where their mouth is. And it really helped us. And, you know, the idea was to get halfway to our goal before we engaged just the general public. And we were a little over halfway whenever we announced it at the birthday party. And then the community just got us to that next level. So I think it worked well. You know, it is a lofty goal, but we made it and it's going to make sure that we can survive this year and not have to dip into, you know, completely wipe out our savings or close down the cinema or not have a festival. So I think it's pretty great. Are there any specific projects that this $200,000 allows you to do that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to do? It allows us to not have to let everybody go at the cinema. So the cinema is, you know, while it's up and running, it is a fraction of what we normally make at the cinema. But we see the people who work there as so valuable. And that if 
in one year, we don't want to not have them on the team. And this money allows us to keep them. And so it is just general operating funds. But with it, that means we're able to do things like Later this week, we're announcing a collaboration with Logboat where we're opening a third screen, but it's outdoors and Como Famous, which we have up and coming. And then we have a an outdoor screening with the Murray Center. So the things that are already on our calendar, we can now do and we don't have to worry about having our top level programmer also working the box office because we had to let go of our box officers. So it really just lets us maintain what we do, which is great. So the new event at Logboat, I believe, is called Ragboat. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about that. So um, the distributors who we get our films from, there is a point where they were like, we won't work with you unless you have an outdoor space. And so that's what we had to find. And so we went to Logboat and they were gung-ho to get people in their space on Sundays and Mondays. They're currently closed on those days, but they will be open for us. And so it's just going to be ragtag, but outside in their wonderful yard. And so we put together what we are calling the A-team of production, and they will come set it up every Sunday and Monday, and we'll watch films out there. Some of them will be brand new films, like we have the new Miranda July film, Kajillionaire, opening up next weekend. Some of them will be retrospectives, like this weekend we have the Talking Heads documentary. And so it's going to be different, but it's going to be the ragtag experience, but with, you know, a little bit more air. (laughs) So what is the capacity are you estimating for that venue? So Logboat is um, okay to have 150 people in that area. So we are hoping we're kind of capping it at 100 and you can, we'll have, you know, marked space on the ground so that everybody is socially distanced. I don't know what to expect. You know, I, I, don't know if we'll have a hundred people out there every time. I doubt it, but we're ready if we if we need it. So, and then we have somebody who's doing like crowd management. We have these six foot things that we made out of old movie posters that will help guide people also to be like, make sure you're six feet away. And then we are requiring masks too to make sure that it's safe out there. A hundred people sounds like a lot. I guess you had the the drive in the summer drive in at mm-hmm. Les Bourgeois over the summer, so. That would have been over 100 people. But I have not been in 100-person capacity since <laughs> true false. <laughs> so I feel kind of anxious even just thinking about 100 people. Yeah, you know, at the drive-in, the health department did give us the okay for people to be out of their cars. So we marked 12 by 20 squares on the ground. The car was in that space, and then you could sit in that square outside with your mask on. And we had some people who did that, other people who stayed in their cars. So, you know, we're trying to give as many options for people to come see movies and still feel safe. So we have other drive-ins in the works once it gets a little colder for that option. If you feel safe enough to come to the cinema, it is clean and the airflow is good. So you can be there or outside as an option at Logboat. And is the schedule of films up on the website for the Ragboat season yet? So that will be released later this week. Um, It does entail, like I said, some new films, some older films. And then by the end of October, we have what has always been pretty popular with our audiences is a horror film series, which does include Rocky Horror Picture Show, which I am very excited about (laughs) for that one. So we've always been hesitant to do it at the cinema because it can get kind of rowdy. And so we're like, well, it's outside. It'll be a little safer. So, (laughs) but yeah, you know, it's, it's something 
we keep talking about pivoting and like, this is where we're pivoting and we're going to see how it goes. And if it, if it doesn't go well, we will come up with another idea, but I do think it's going to be a good collaboration. I mean, Logboat, like Ragtag, is something that people love about our community, and it's going to be a great thing. And then there's food trucks and, you know, beat boxes right there. So I think we're going to have, I think it'll be a good experience. Yeah, I think it's a good happy medium where for those of us that aren't comfortable being inside, we can be outside. And then I guess we have to just start getting used to being around people again and uh, getting over that mental hump. It like energizes me the the drive-in that we had, man, I couldn't I couldn't get enough of people and I kept having to remind myself like, okay, be distant, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Barbie, I hope you wouldn't be distant with us and we'll we'll be able to chat again soon. But thank you so much for all the updates. It's lovely to chat to you again. <laughs> Same to you. Have a great day. And you. Bye, Barbie. One more stop today and it is to chat with Joy Powell, Assistant Teaching Professor of the University of Missouri's Theatre Department, to find out what's on their schedule for the upcoming fall season. Good morning, Joy. Good morning. How are you today? I'm fine. It is a strange and unsettling time, I'd say, to be in the world of theatre, maybe less so in the world of theatre education than out in the professional world where there's no theatres open and zero income for venues or directors or actors or choreographers or costume designers or any of the support and admin staff who make the theatre world function. And I'm sure you have many friends who are out in that wider world. What are you hearing at this point? Absolutely what you're saying is true. The world has turned upside down, to quote Hamilton. And what I'm seeing is quite a bit of resilience and adaptability. I just read a New York Times article last week about resilience and how resilience is, is made. And some people are more resilient than others. And there's many, many factors. But one of them is if people have been through difficulties before, they're able to build that resiliency over time. And of course, to me, theater makers are always resilient. Any artist, you're always overcoming something. I think there is a sense of protest in every art that's made. And so these times, while they caught us off guard, I think in some ways artists, I'm seeing them thrive. And I'm seeing that resiliency in many different art forms. I'm seeing people and theater companies figuring out how to do art outside, especially theater, or spaced in a certain way. Actors' Equity has granted permission. Now, this was, this was a month ago, so I think it's up to now, but there was a one-man show they granted permission for their actors to be a part of. Then there was a production of Godspell where they used actually plexiglass shields, and they really used the elements of keeping people safe in this time of corona as part of the set pieces in the show. And so, as always, what's happening in the world, art is going to comment on that and is going to have a point of view and is really using those tools to tell the story of where we are right now. And so I'm seeing that all over, and that's just not in faraway places. I mean, that's right here in Columbia, you know, over the summer. For the Larry D. Clark, some repertory theater, we did three shows online And I know you and I have discussed that at length. And we're continuing that work now, this semester. That resiliency is still happening. What we learned over the summer, we're building on. So we're going to actually do an encore showing of So Near, So Far. And that is this weekend. 
And then we are doing a selections of the Murphy Ward and Friends musical, All the Spaces, so that we can really hone in on some of the very specific songs and scenes of that show. Because, of course, it's still in development. And this summer's iteration was really a reading. And so now we're going to be able to film some scenes and and songs on stage with the social distance practices and safety precautions that we learned during the summer. So that's a big, long answer to your question. But what I'm seeing is artists helping other artists, and I'm seeing a real sense of resiliency. So talking about those two shows that you have coming up this fall that you did have on in the summer. So these are, like you say, they're encore performances. So near so far, you you did perform on the stage with social distancing. How are these, how is that fall production different from what we saw over the summer? How has it changed? Well, so near so far will be the same production. It'll be the same one that we did this summer. We're just kicking off the season. What we do is is to have content for our classes. Um, normally our students are required to see our productions. And so we are then doing an encore performance of the same production of So Near So Far that we did this summer to give that content. Of course, audiences can buy a ticket and and they can also view it. But all the spaces where we're honing in, we're doing recording five songs and five scenes in the same way that we did so near so far this summer. So all the spaces was done over Zoom in the summer. This will be filmed, this selections version will be filmed on the Rheinsberger stage. With the same cast? Yes. Okay, well, that'll be fun to see. Now, when, again, back in the summer when we were talking about all the spaces, it is part of the, the process for the student of creating this work is that you get to take it to an off-Broadway theatre for a Broadway premiere or an off-Broadway premiere and the cast and the production team will go to New York and it's just an amazing opportunity to be seen and heard by professional Broadway personnel and obviously that's a little tricky right now. What's the update on all the spaces going to New York? So this weekend was would have been when we were supposed to be there so that's very challenging. <laughs> mm. But the the plan right now is to push it a year and fall of 21 is when we would do the Mizzou on Broadway version of the show at the York Theater. So right now we're looking at a year away. So um, now who knows what's going to happen in the world between now and then or when New York will really open back up. But that's the plan we're operating from right now. And so, I mean, like you say, back in the summer when we were watching it on Zoom, it was it was pretty long. It was about two hours because it was still a reading and a work in production. So I guess part of the work you're going to be doing this fall is to pare it down and create a tighter show so that when it does go to New York, it'll be more of a regular production length. Is that part of the process? Yes, absolutely. And we couple of reasons why we did the selections of, first of all, we wanted to help Murphy and his creative writing team really be able to hone in on certain moments that were crucial to the storyline and really help them see those things with maybe a different lens. We also wanted to give Murphy time to really process the summer version and really write, you know, make those changes and and edits and updates and things. And that wasn't going to be able to happen in a month's time. (laughs) So he's currently working on a new version of the script, a newer version, with having had some time to process that. So this is definitely a work in progress, which we love. And it also, 
It gives the other rest of the production team time to look at the story in a different way. You know, in the summer, basically all we have is SRT, and that's our big focus. Well, now we're in the school year, and people are teaching and taking classes. And so doing a full-scale production, especially because of COVID, was just not possible. So we felt like this this way forward made a lot of sense for all of those reasons. SRT is summer rep theater. Yes, yes. So thinking about the upcoming semester, I mean, when we chatted back in the summer, this seemed like a, a temporary period of time that you were navigating. And now that temporary period seems to be stretching into a little bit more of a permanent affair. <laughs> I'm wondering in terms of what you're teaching, have you developed new courses that deal with this time that we're in so students have a different uh, set of skills to take forward? Uh, what an excellent question. Oh, thank you, Joy. <laughs> Gosh, you're so good at your job. Um, they're not new courses yet, but how we're teaching and what we're teaching in the courses definitely has adapted to our current context. For example, Brett Christofferson, who wrote So Near So Far and is music director of all the spaces I know we've visited with you, he and I, in the past. Uh, he and I teach a musical theater performance course each semester. And so this semester, what we're doing is we're doing part online, part face-to-face. And we are having the students create their audition reel videos through the course. Because, not just because of corona, but in general, a lot of people will submit videos, especially for musical theater auditions. And then that's how you know, there's a weeding out process, right? If if a producer or director likes that video, then they might call the person in for a face-to-face audition or a callback of some kind. And so we're using this time to really help the students develop that skill, you know, because they're often focused on the notes they're singing and they're not noticing that, you know, their cat's going crazy in the background <laughs> of the video, right? Or there's something, a weird poster on their wall or, you know what I mean? They're not typically that's not how they think. And so again, we're trying to give them some other lenses with which to look through, uh, to look through, to look at the work. And so at the end of this semester, these students are going to have, gosh, probably seven or eight videos of high quality that they'll be able to submit for auditions for the next little bit of time as needed. And so that to me is one adaptation that we're making in our classes to really help students be career ready, which is something that we really focus on in the College of Arts and Science. I mean, talking of musical theatre, I mean, for me, you stand out as a phenomenal director of musical theatre, which is maybe the most complex form of theatre to navigate right now. You know, musicians and people singing and and aerosols. It's just very tricky. Whereas short one-person plays that can be produced and performed with great intensity, and I'm thinking of Greenhouse Theatre Project's production of the Lauren Gunderson play Natural Shocks this summer, and right now Talking Horse Productions has got an original monologue series going. Mm-hmm. These uh, shorter, smaller plays seem to better serve the parameter of technology, you know, the Zoom world that we're all now relying upon. Has there been any discussion at Mizzou or within what you're offering this semester of, of working with this technology and doing very much smaller, tighter productions? Sure. We do have a third offering in the semester. And that will be our the 18th annual Life and Literature Performance Series. And so last year we did Climate Change Action Theater. This year it will be a different focus because it will be on Zoom or virtual in some way. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's a small 
smaller group, you know, monologues and and the Life and Literature Performance Series really celebrates performing things other than scripts, poetry, prose, student original work, those kinds of things. And so um, I'm very excited to be able to, you know, not everyone sings. I mean, of course, I think everyone can sing, but (laughs) not everyone chooses to sing. And so since we have two musical theater offerings in the semester, we, of course, want to balance that out to our theater makers who are performers who don't sing. And so the Life and Literature series really gives that, uh, that opens that lane for those performers. And I'm very excited about that. I love Life and Lit. It's such a, a unique thing, I think, to Mizzou. And I'm very excited to see it adapt to our current context. Right. And this is the 18th year for it. So it's been yes. around for a couple of decades. So three productions coming up. So Near So Far is on online this weekend, September the 17th to the 27th, starting at 7pm. And tickets are $10. You can also, coming up in October from the 14th to the 25th, see selections from All the Spaces, which was written by Mizzou student Murphy Ward and pals. And I highly recommend that. It's so, <laughs> so much fun. So brilliant. Um, um, so good. Again, 7 p.m. start and $10. And then the 18th annual Life and Literature Performance Series is coming up later on in the year in November. So plenty of things that people can see on online. But right now, as far as you know, there's nothing in person that people can see. No. Unless things change. Yeah, we we just, we're just not there. No. You know, we uh, we want to protect our faculty, staff, and students and our audiences. I mean, our community is so important. And um, we hope course sooner than later that we will be able to but as of right now this is this is how we prove our resiliency by moving forward even in unprecedented that buzzword uh (laughs) ways unprecedented pivot there's lots of words that we'll never want to use again after 2020 (laughs) amen (laughs) joy powell thank you so much for chatting with me oh thank you that is it for another week for those of us who want to stay involved there is a plethora of things going on right now from daily monologues by talking horse actors to outdoor movies the arts radar never sleeps All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks again to my guests today, Alex George, Kelsey Hammond, Barbie Banks and Joy Powell. Thank you also to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song Restless Heart at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Before I sign off for this week, a special thank you to everyone who donated to this week's fund drive. KUPN is such a special organization because it is our community platform. 
It's where you can come to bask in your community and to hear the voices of people who are our neighbours, friends, people we say hi to in the supermarket, people who run local businesses and organisations. KOPN has been listener-supported radio since 1973 and in this fast-paced world of sound bites and talking heads in faraway places, isn't it nice that we get to have our own radio station? So thank you for donating. You are helping to keep our community radio alive and we couldn't do it without you. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.